0: In the midst of a sermon series on the life of Elijah, and we're still very early on in that series. And we have this episode in 1 Kings chapter 17, an episode of loss and recovery. I want to speak tonight about these heavy subjects because I think it really hits us in a unique way. When we lose something, we're often never quite the same. Uh, I have a friend who was given. Uh, jewelry from the bear, uh, from uh, billionaireess, uh, Brooke Astor, and she happened to lose that jewelry, never to find it again. Some of you have lost a wedding ring or something at the beach, you know, that it's just gone, you know, it's never coming back. Uh, some people have lost not so much an object, but a skill. Uh, my grandmother used to love to sing in the choir, and then As she aged, particularly after age 70, she just stopped having the ability to sing well. And that was very grievous to her. Uh, For other people, they lose their health over time. Uh, We all do, of course, but some people lose bits of it radically. I have a friend my age, graduated to high school with her. Her parents attend this church. She just woke up one day and was deaf uh, in in her left ear. Couldn't hear a thing, still can't. No explanation no cause seemingly. Um, I have other friends who lost their home on Ash Wednesday. On Ash Wednesday, it was burned to the ground. So, this life is full of horrific losses that shape us, but I, I don't think any loss shapes us as, uh, as significantly as the death of a person. The death of a person, a person we love, is an unrivaled loss because you would give all of the jewelry you have and all of your possessions and your skills your health even your home to have somebody whom you've lost come back to your life we've all lost somebody like that somebody that mattered almost as much as life itself and and people are more valuable you know than all of those other things because people reflect God and diamonds do not in the same way because people are made in God's image and likeness and so you see fractals of the divine in their eyes and And when their eyes are gone, when their life is gone, those fractals seem to diminish from our experience. Uh, But I think it's especially tragic when a child dies. You know, it's terrible to lose a a 95-year-old matriarch or patriarch, and that's very shaping when they leave us. It can reorient a family when they leave. But when a child dies, it's like there's a potential there's a loss of potential a loss of a future that could have been and a loss of what we could have had not only from that person but with that person so that when we lose a child we lose a part of us too that would have been cultivated and shaped by their presence and so i want to speak tonight about loss and recovery from this episode in elijah's early ministry uh, he 's now um, living with a, a widow and her son, and there are two scenes in this story, the first one we covered last week. That scene had to do just contextually with the land being under a, a famine due to a, a great act of judgment of God upon Israel. so there 's a famine, and this widow and her son are going to starve to death with many other people who are needy, but Uh, she received through the miraculous uh, intervention of God, endless supplies of flour and oil so she could keep eating and her son could keep eating and that they wouldn't die. And you would think that that would be the end, the tidy end of a very happy intervention story, but not really because tonight we read about a second crisis, a great loss. So, let me speak about loss in verse 17. I invite you to please follow along with me in your bulletin so we can consider the word together. Verse 17, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Two things to note about this passage. The first is how catastrophic it is. Not only is it, of course, agonizing beyond description and beyond my own experience, truth be told, to lose a child that you've known for some time. Uh, If you you lose a son like that, life is never the same. But in this day and age, your son was of course your heir and there was a lot of thought given to lineage. That's why we have so uh, um, many uh, long histories in the Old Testament of who begat whom, right? Lots of interest in lineage and heritage and that being passed on from generation to generation, and now that's been cut off. Uh, That's bad enough, but also the son of a widow meant she would have some future security because eventually this young boy would grow up and work and be able to provide for her in her autumn years, and now not only has her son died, but she is put in jeopardy. Her life is in jeopardy. So, it's catastrophic and it's inexplicable. That's the other thing to notice, inexplicable. It doesn't seem to make sense. God just provided a miraculous provision of food for the purposes of staving off and preventing death from this family so that they would not starve to death. So, what sense does it make now that this family is safe and secure? Uh, from all alarms regarding starvation, that God would allow some sort of infection or whatever to devastate and destroy this young life. And the widow feels this, and she starts complaining. She blames Elijah, and then she blames herself. Do you remember what she said? What have you against me, O man of God? In other words, are you bringing some sort of bad spiritual dynamic by being present here and then she blames herself she says um, that you have come to bring my sin to remembrance that may be a vague way of saying that she's she thinks you have this holy man she thinks he's a holy man here with me and that makes me look bad by comparison perhaps and maybe I'm getting what I deserve and maybe I wouldn't have gotten what I deserved had he never showed up in the first place But now, because of something that I did, I'm reaping reaping what I've sown in the past. It's interesting what Elijah does, though. He doesn't enter into a theological argument with her. You don't understand how the dynamics of heaven work. Um, He doesn't yell at her. He doesn't tell her to shut up. What does he do? He gets alone and he prays. He goes to God, and he goes to God with the hurt with the pain, carrying it to God. Did you, did you see the language that he used? Why would you do this? Why would you bring calamity upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Elijah goes to God and says, I don't understand the logic of the situation. You save his life and then you let him die. And it doesn't make any sense to me. Now, You may know the name Job, the iconical testament sufferer who within the story loses his money, his children, his health, all is taken away. And in the midst of his funereal loss, his three friends come to visit. They stay quiet for a while, but then they start talking. And the more they talk to Job, the more they try to convince him that he has triggered God in a particular way and that all of his besetting pain is his fault. But then at the end of the book, when Job begins to be restored, uh, God uh, uh, shows himself to Job, but in terms of his wrath or his anger, that is expressed not toward Job, but Job's friends that blamed him the whole time. You may know that at the end of the book of Job, God says this to the friends, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right but my servant Job has. So, you didn't represent me well, but Job has. He spoke of me what is right. Now, if you've ever read the book of Job, that comment is a little bit quizzical because he spends like 30 chapters angrily railing at the heavens and questioning the justice of the heavens regarding his present bitter circumstances. He's kind of raging out, and yet, God says, for you have not spoken to me what is right, but my servant Job has. How could that be said of Job? I think this is at least in part the answer. Job never stopped talking to God. Job's friends didn't talk to God too much. They just talked at Job. But Job took all of his pain, all of his anguish, all of his unanswered questions and rage and funneled it at the heavens. And God concludes by saying, You have not spoken of me what is right, but my servant Job has. Similarly, Elijah is crying out to God about the seeming illogic of all of this and saying, Why did you have to take her kid? I mean, she's a widow. She's a a widow that now has to experience a new degree of calamity. Why did her son need to be killed? Well, why did God let the widow's son die? The text doesn't say. And alas, and probably for our benefit, the omniscient brain is not ours to scrutinize or psychoanalyze. But I think maybe we get a hint later in John chapter 9, You may may remember the story where Jesus finds a man in the temple precincts that is blind, uh, blind from birth, just a birth defect. And his disciples become quizzical, and they ask him, Rabbi, who sinned? Whose fault is it that this man was born blind? Is it somehow his fault that he was born blind or his parents? And Jesus answers them this way. It was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him and then he heals him I don't know the answer about why God let this widow's son die but maybe maybe the reason that this particular boy died is that the world needed to know that God's life-giving authority as creator and re-creator, stretched further than anyone at that time dared to dream, even to a sad, still deathbed. Maybe, maybe the world needed to know that revivification could occur, that new life can spring from death. That's something about loss. Now something about recovery. This is verse 21. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O oh, Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. A few things to note. First, This is, I would say, the grandest miracle yet to occur within the Old Testament. You may say, Ethan, there are many other fancy miracles in the Old Testament, and you are correct. There's the parting of the Red Sea, the parting of the Jordan, manna from heaven, pillar of fire at night, pillar of cloud during the day. I know them. But we've never seen anything like this before in the biblical record. Sick people become well. People bit by snakes become miraculously healed. But this is a dead boy that comes back to life again. This is the first resuscitation in the Old Testament. And consider the audience of this grandest miracle, a stranger from a misfit family in pagan territory. It is not an Israelite whom God raises from the dead. It's this kid. Also, I want you to note the human mediation of this miracle. There's a human mediator here. I suppose God could have just made the kid come back to life, but instead, Elijah has a role. Elijah is the one that prays. Elijah makes physical contact with the boy. And why is Elijah involved in this miracle? Well, you may know this, but if you don't, here's some, I think, just some biblical wisdom. Whenever there's a massive Word event in the Bible, when the Word, when God's revelation to people is coming in very clearly, whether it's through Moses or a prophet or Jesus Himself, there is very often a supernatural miracle that corresponds to the audible Uh, uh, and inspired words of these people. That is, when they speak the Word of God, there are visible, corresponding, miraculous, supernatural signs that are given in order to verify that what is being spoken is true and right. Uh, You may remember the incident where Jesus heals the paralytic. There's a paralytic that is being brought to Him. uh, And Jesus says to the paralytic, "'Son, your sins are forgiven.'" And then people freak, right? They're like, who are you to say that? You, you know, you don't have the credentials. Uh, you can't say that people's sins are forgiven. Only God does that. Um, and Jesus turns to them and says, uh, but so you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I tell you, speaking to the paralytic, rise, take up your mat, and walk. What was happening? He was giving the Word of God, And people were doubting it, and so he gave a physical, supernatural sign to show that he had the authority to speak the word and that both were true. I think that Elijah becomes, in his prayer and in his bodily actions, involved to show that miracles that flow through him validate the message that flows through him. The prophet that tells the king to repent is right and true and the miracles are evidence of his uh, veracity. And that's why at the end of this story what does the widow say? It's the last verse of our passage. She says, "Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in, in the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth." In other words, how could I be how could I believe otherwise? Not only did you provide me with one miracle, now I get two. Now I get my son back. Which means everything that you've said about God has to be true. It's a double miracle, by the way. The miracle is increasing in degree. First, it's food to sustain life, then when life is threatened or taken away, God creates life itself. God can create. God can recreate. He can remake you. He has the technology. And so, that's something about loss. That's something about this glorious recovery, which, of course, foreshadows not only Jesus' own ministry, by raising the son of a widow in the New Testament, we read about it tonight, or by raising Lazarus later on. This, in some ways, foreshadows how Jesus himself will square with death in his own person. So let me conclude by saying something about loss and recovery as it relates to us. Uh, I want to tell you tonight what I think Scripture does not promise you. I have to be a bit of a downer just for a minute, but then, you know, the plane as it descends will also ascend, so that's big. that's going to happen too, but now for the descent. Um, I think churches, because we are filled with people, are often uneasy in expressing pain and loss. We're not terribly comfortable talking about those things, and in fact, in certain eras of the church's, uh, collective life. we have like to emphasize more the Christian's individual victory over the pains of this world. I am not discounting that sometimes God does give us relief from pains and that miracles do occur. I think that happens. Um, at the same time within a fallen world, within a world that has yet to be resurrected and made new, uh, miracles all have a shelf life. And so what I cannot promise you and what Scripture cannot promise you is immediate healing in every circumstance. Scripture also does not promise emotional anesthesia so that you don't feel the psychological or emotive pain in a given situation. Scripture also does not say that within this life, life will get easier, because it might not. Nor does Scripture even promise you the kindness of others who will hear and understand your pain with great empathy because you may have a friend or two just like Job's. In the end, friends, the sad word within this veil of tears is that we lose it all, and I mean all. We lose everything and everyone. Uh, To put it rather squarely, to steal a phrase from a former professor of mine, we will bury everyone we love, or they will bury us. And I think we have to hear the heartbreak in that and come to terms with it. Uh, There was a, a haunting line in Hearts in Atlantis, which is a Stephen King novella, where he says this about the human experience. He says, hearts can break. Yes, hearts can break. Sometimes I wish we would die when they broke, but we don't. Many of you have felt that way. But I think it's also good to remember that Christianity's central figure had no immunity from loss. That according to the prophet Isaiah, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was a man from whom we hid our faces. He was so pained we didn't even want to stare. We couldn't even look him in the eye. And yet because that man in the pit of turmoil is God. That means that God is acquainted with all the agonies that beset your life too. That's why the psalmist says that our tears are gathered up by God in a bottle, like they're remembered. They dry up on our faces, but not for God, like He keeps them. And it's, a, it's a, the psalmist's way of saying your pain matters. Everything that you feel matters. And even if nobody sees it, the one who made you and remakes you sees and feels. Uh, So that's something about loss, but now something about recovery. So within Catholicism, you may know that I have a favorite saint, St. Anthony. (laughs) He's the patron saint of lost things. Uh, No, I don't pray to him, but I I love that he was given that job. Like, you know, for somebody's car keys, St. Anthony, please help us out. Um... But for us, ultimately, for us, it's not so much St. Anthony, but it's Jesus who seeks and finds the lost. And by lost, I don't just mean sinners and junkies and the ailing, you know, people that are lost in moral or other concerns. I mean people that are so lost, they're dead. That is, people that are gone, people that can't respond. He seeks after the dead, that is, uh, Jesus' skills actually exceed Elijah's because Jesus doesn't just resuscitate people that have gone before, Jesus resurrects. What's the difference? Resuscitated people die again a second time later. Resurrected people never do because just like Jesus' risen body, they receive a new physicality that is invincible and enduring. Jesus promised us this. He promised this about the bond of faith in John chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me yet, though he die, he shall in fact live. What does this mean? It means that you get your miracle too. It's not just for Elijah's day and it's not just about this widow or her son. We all get our miracle because in the end, Jesus has already found us, and after we die, he'll find us too. I have a friend whose father was dying of a very aggressive cancer when the man was only 54 years old. Uh, He didn't get to see his grandchildren, uh, but he was dying. She was actually studying at the time in a seminary, and she was so confused as to why he would be taken so suddenly and abruptly by this uh, malignancy and she went to the hospital chapel you've all been there right they have like 18,000 different religious symbols so nobody's offended you know they have the crescent moon and the menorah and the cross and the crucifix and a few others for good measure so she's in the interfaith chapel and she's just yelling she closed the door and she's just yelling she said you know what would it hurt you to do what you used to do uh, just once in a while, like one miracle, I want you to save his life. One miracle, that's what I'm asking. Uh, Well, she returned to his hospital room, not hoping for much, and it was just the two of them, and he was dying, but he was quite alert at the time. And uh, he he was a, a lace curtain Irishman. Some of you know what that means. A lace curtain Irishmen are Irish, uh, Irish men that typically, you know, wear suits to dinner and well-pressed shirts to dinner within their own home, and they don't show emotion, right? They're kind of, they're sort of German-Irish in that way, but no emotion. Everything is sort of, you know, just steady all the time. But she really sensed the Holy Spirit say, you know, you really do need to express yourself to your dad right now. You need to tell the man you love him. Now, that may not sound strange to you, but it was strange in this family, And she said, look, that's ridiculous. This is not an episode of the Gilmore Girls, you know, or Bonanza, where somebody's dying on the deathbed, and you say everything you need to say, and they say it back, and you end in peace. That's ridiculous. That's cliche. That's sentimental. We are not sentimental people. And the Holy Spirit was like, do it now. And she's like, okay, all right. So she yields, and she says, Dad, and she squeezes, and she said, you do know I really love you a lot, right? And he squeezes her hand right back and said, I really know that, and I love you too. A half hour later, he he died. I, I asked her about it, and she said, Look, I did get my miracle. I got my miracle because I realized I had an amazing father for 54 years. And how many people can say that? and i also know that he'll get his miracle too cuz jesus is coming for him too resurrection for my dad resurrection for me well that's the idea that in the story jesus gives each of us that miracle it's for us and for all the others you know our miscarried children kids that were still born children that we've lost Older ones that we've lost? Within this veil of tears, we do lose, undeniably. But then, after that, after the leukemia, after the lymphoma, after the dementia, after the lifelong battle with anorexia, after the car accident, after the heart attack, The message is this you are not too far gone never you are not too far gone you never are the teary smiling father scoops up his prodigal one by one and says you my child were dead and are alive again you were lost and are forever found amen They could not